Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the internet's leading provider of spoken word entertainment. Get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today. Log on to audiblepodcast.com slash sofa today for details. This is Starship Sofa, everybody. Welcome, hello and welcome to Oral Delights, show number 96. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Now, did you miss me? Yes, we have been away, the sofa has been away. It's not going on nearly three weeks, I think, there now. And been on the Starship Sofa has been on a happy holidays to Bath of all cosmic places. Well, actually, the Lake District first week and Bath the second week. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that in the sanatorium show. If anyone wants to pop over there and have a listen to that, but yes, welcome back. We are back, and do you know what I mean? The show I've got kind of put together, and it's actually been put together at the kind of last minute. Do you know what I mean? Okay, we've just got back, we're just getting all the camp and stuff put together, you know, and sorted out and store away and things like that and then it's like straight back into the deep end but it's just like and i think this is what makes starship sofa kind of unique you know like, yes i'm blowing you and trumpet again but it's just so good <laughs> i mean it's just like this is what an audio magazine or this is what even like a fiction magazine should be like you know the kind of content we've got the stories we've got the, the fact articles everything comes together to make like the starship sofa and First class, if you ask, in, in my honest opinion. <laughs> I'll tell you what's coming up today anyways. We've got the editorial by my good self. 
we've got a little kind of promo, not really promo, a little kind of heads up. We're asking for testers, for volunteers to step forward. Could you be that one with the sofa stream? I let Simon talk all about that. Just a little couple of minutes talk about the sofa stream about the new Android platform the Starship Sova has taken up, taken residence on. So listen out for that. We have Pori by Mike Allen. We have Flash Fiction by Ahmed A. Khan. We have our Science News by none other than JJ Campanella. Main Fiction is just staggering, to be quite honest, by one of my favourite writers out there, Ted Kuzmatka. And it is just... Sit back and just enjoy this story. Do you know what I mean? It's a full... Beginning, middle and end story and it gets no better, to be quite honest. Then we have, if you've been following Amy H. Sturgis, then you'll you'll know we're on the kind of part three of Amy's proto-science fiction, the final one in a little section on proto-science fiction. Amy is the kind of workhorse of the Starship Sova. Bless her, I had her grafting away over at Worldcon there doing two reports and then she kind of put all this together as well. So Amy, you know, thank you so much. That is Starship Sova's Oral Delights, show number 96. I hope you will enjoy it. Do stick around. So the editorial is, and it's just really the kind of, the, the coming together of the kind of the World Con and the Hugos and just kind of having Starship Sova's kind of foot in the door and doing them, I think it was now we're on a, we did seven shows all together. And I actually wasn't in for three of them, you know. I was on, like I say, on my happy holidays. And Kate Big, I took over the reins. And that's, it's, it's these things that kind of made us proud, you know what I mean? Because, like you say, Worldcon, for me, you know, like living on this kind of side of the pond, it's always been one of those things that's just a million miles away, do you know what I mean? And you never get to kind of, like, sample it. And I probably never will, do you know what I mean? Like, being in America, and it's just, you know far too much money. It comes to England, I think, once every 10 years or something, but if I'll get there, you know what I mean, all dependent. But I just thought, and it was only, it was one of these kind of last minute things put together, do you know what I mean? And they were talking about it, me and Kate and Amy talked about Lover Skype, but we didn't know if it was going to come off. And then, you know, it was getting nearer and nearer and then we, you know, kind of had to work it out. And then, you know, all of a sudden it was done. And I'm, I'm forgetting, actually, John Joseph Adams, he stepped in for a show as well. And listen back and listen to them shows. You know, I put one on this this feed as well. The rest of them are on sofa note shows. It was, you know, I was just really chuffed a bit with the kind of the whole, you know, from the first show to the last show, which was actually the last show, which was done by it was an in, an interview with Kate Baker interviewing Neil Clark from Clark's World, and, and it was just such a like a real insight into kind of the mechanics and the workings of Worldcon, you know, and these awards and everything like going on with the awards like that, and even Kate Show where she kind of was taken by Neil into kind of the, the pre party and the after party and the awards, you know what I mean? That was such an insight, you know. Then you had kind of Amy delivering them two shows, which just like on kind of the shop floor side of things, you know, and, and took you right through that. Then you had John Joseph Adams's style. Which was, you know, t- kind of from a, he was coming from it, and it was actually nice to get John's like point of view because he was like a, a business side point of view. You know, it's a job to him. You know, we're all kind of fan boys and fan girls, and but, you know, John's got to kind of sell his wares, and and these are the shows that he, he does that. You know, and it was it was nice to have John's side of things as well. So, I do hope you know you'll you know everything's kind of finished there now but if you just like to have a listen over you know and get it it gives you that insight that kind of just that opens that little door a little bit to let you sample Worldcon 
you know, and I was getting, honestly, because I've got me, I was in this campsite, middle of nowhere, when, about a mile from Bath, and I was getting email after email, you know, saying, what a great idea, thank you so much, and I'm thinking, it was not just me, you know, so it was just, it's just really, actually, you know, I'm standing here, sitting here, just to say thank you to Amy, to Kate, to John Joseph Adams, you know, couldn't have done it without you, and you know, Neil Clark as well, from Clarksville, do pop over and, you know, check out Neil's site. It's just fascinating to, to listen to everybody, you know, who was at Worldcon, and just to get caught up with it, you know. And as usual, <laughs> as usual, I'm the kiss of death when it comes to nailing the colours to the mass. You know, like, I so wanted, like, Cory Doctorow's little brother to win the award for best novel. And, you know, I, I tried to be clever. <laughs> I went for 26 Monkeys, Kish Johnson, you know, a great story, don't get us wrong, but it was up against, you know, Ted Chang, and I was thinking, mm, you know, I'm just, just, you know what the warden's like sometimes, it's not always plain sailing. <laughs> totally wrong, got it wrong, so, and Ted Chang won, and you know, Ted Chang was the kind of, for me, the, probably the better story, you know, by a long shot, maybe not, well, I'm actually saying maybe not as good as, you know, Merchant Alchemist Gates, that was just going off what kind of, emails I was getting and the vibes I've been picking up while doing the, the two stories and, you know, the shows like that. But still, it, you know, like I say, getting that insight and getting Kate to do that show like the day after and get, you know, the, the results and just get caught up in it. It was just an amazing time. So, Kate, thank you so much. Amy, thank you so much. John Joseph Adams. So this is where Simon, Simon let me introduce Simon Hildebrandt. Simon stepped up to the mark a while ago. I'll put out a shout if anyone kind of remembers. My idea is Starship Sofa, you know, and basically the way we kind of consume, I guess, you know, the, the, the content, the media we're, we're kind of consuming now via, you know, albeit, should I say, books, you know, audio, anything like that, movies maybe, you know, it's all going to come. This is my idea, and Simon's on the same level as well. You're going to get it through your phone eventually, a few years' time. That's the way, I guess, most of us are going to get, you know, probably especially, say, the likes of Starships over in podcasts. It's going to be through, like, a smartphone, you know. I can't say it would be much longer before, you know, you're sitting at your computer desk waiting to download a show, then to take it away on an iPod. I think, you know, Wi-Fi is coming into everything, coming into its own. It's going to be, you know, things are going to change. So, you know, and things are changing, and like I say, these phones are out there now, so I kind of put a shout out, you know, if anyone was out there, a developer. Now, I've gotten three developers. Now, I haven't actually heard from one for a long time, so I don't know. Chris, are you still there? Chris is working on the Nokia application, or an app for the Nokia phone to, to take in this, the Starship Sova. We have someone for the iPhone that's going to get started cracking on the iPhone app development coming soon, and I'll mention that soon. But... Simon, bless him, has been there from the very beginning, and and I didn't realise actually how probably complicated and you know bigger job this is. But Simon has built the the first sofa stream for the the Google Android platform, and I'm going to play Simon's little promo, a little shout out, and then I'll I'll come back to you. Hello, sofa fans. My name is Simon Hildebrandt, and I'd like to introduce you to Sofa Stream a brand new way of getting your regular serving of delicious sofa sauce. There's been a lot of discussion on the sofa notes recently about the future of publishing, including new ways to access news and content like short fiction. That's something I've always been excited about, 
Tor.com serializing Cory Doctorow's The Makers on their site is a great example of this, and I've been happily following the story through my trusty RSS reader. So when Tony put out the call for a mobile app for the sofa, I decided to step up to the plate and take a swing at building one using Google's Android platform. Thus, SofaStream was born, an app that allows you to easily track all three Starship Sofa syndicated feeds, download or stream each episode, and follow the show notes as you listen, all on your Android phone. SofaStream is now in beta, and I'm hoping you'll all take it for a test drive. It's available as a free app on the Android market. Just search for SofaStream, download it, try it out, and let me know what you think. I'm also entering SofaStream in the second Android Developer Challenge, and submissions close at the end of August. So the quicker you let us know what you do and don't like about the app, the better. And if you're feeling creative, we're also running a competition for the best SofaStream icon. Get inspired by some of the great episode artwork and send your designs to Tony via starshipsofa at gmail.com. Entries should be 48 by 48 pixel PNGs and the winner will receive some tasty fiction. So step right up and put the sofa in your pocket. Check the show notes for links or check simonhildebrandt.com for more information. Thanks, and back to you, Tony. So there you go. The sofa stream is live. You know, there, there is a test version out there. Please, you know, if you've got an Android Google phone, just go and get it and just, you know, help me work out all the kinks and all the kind of the flaws. I've seen all, you know, Simon, there might not be any. Do you know what I mean? Don't worry about it. But, you know, it would be great to get to, like, especially for Simon, to get feedback to make sure, you know, it kind of is nip and tight and tuck and everything's working perfect. You know, and this is like, like I say, the first step in world domination. So please, you know, do look out for that. And like I say, what Simon says about the artwork, you know, if you fancy designing a little bit of fancy little artwork for this icon, you know, the kind of those little icons you see in the app stores, please drop a line. Let's get in touch. And what Simon says, fiction. I've got stacks of bloody fiction books here. You know what I mean? I can send, certainly send some of them out. I know you obviously want to do it for love, but by all means, you know what I mean? I can certainly send some fiction books out there to you, the winner. So please get in touch with either me or Simon and we'll take it from there. I think we're better, you know, science fiction magazine show. I think we're better start doing some science fiction. Bit of poetry by Mike Allen. Mike Allen, as you know, works over at Ark and runs Mythic Delirium, the poetry science fiction design. And it's through Mythic Delirium, you know, Mike's site there, you know, it's that's where I've kind of discovered some of the poems and, you know, some of the kind of poetry that's that's going around in there at the minute. So do look over at Mike's site, Mythic Delirium. I will put a link on front of the site. It is narrated by none other than Kate Baker, ace reporter, Kate. So, Kate, thank you so much for Worldcon and thank you so much for this poem. The Journey to Kailash by Mike Allen As read by Kate Baker When Ganesh marries my mother, I am eighteen, my own man in the eyes of the law, but barely a zygote in his eyes. He calls me spermling the first time we speak in private. I tell him I know a doctor who can do something about that nose. Trunk curls up, perhaps to strike? A smile beneath, that touched the ancient folds around his eyes. Kid, he says, we'll get along fine. In my neighborhood, unseen trains shake the ground every day at five, 
Streets without sidewalks slide between houses tiny as boxcars, or old and rambling as the stories the fogies at the gas stations tell, like them eaten from inside and about to fall, unlike them divided into four apartments each. Ganesh and I play Xbox before my afternoon shifts. Of course he's great with all those hands, he's at least two players at once. And I still glances at his impossible profile, framed by the dusty window. Lumpy, wrinkled nose like a seasoned draft guard, curled an inverse question mark of concentration. On this day, clad in overalls, with the bib undone. How is it, I wonder, that you feel like you belong? As if he heard, he mumbles, Wherever someone loves me, I'm in like Flynn. No, no, Mom, I don't want to know. But as always, she tells me. I know, he could use a few weeks at the Y, and yeah, he's a lot older than your father, but turn off the lights and you wouldn't know it. Sure, sometimes the beginning is way better than the end. But who cares? Once he gets the party rolling. Oh, when he gets rolling. And that trunk... No, no, Mom, I don't want to know. I still don't have a clue how they met. Mom can't remember, and my stepdad always changes the subject, spins me yet another harrowing first-person account of leading his father's troops against demonkind. For me, there was no warning. After a long afternoon behind the Burger King counter, I come home to find him on the couch, Mom asleep against his pillowy chest a bowl of popcorn in his lap quietly munching, his huge ears fanned out, cupped forward as he watches Temple of Doom on cable and giggles under his breath. In retrospect, I was far less surprised than what the moment warranted. As we wait in matching tuxes for the justice of the peace to call us in, I feel new respect, even affection. He didn't have to do this, we all know it. But he agreed without a gripe when Mom asked. See, kid, he whispers around a tusk. Your mother. She has this vivaciousness, this pluck, this drive to defy all odds and plow on. That's like a bath of ratkachandan. For prana pratishta. She makes me feel alive, you understand? This atma... I want to catch it with all my hands, and when it flutters, let it go, watch its flight in awe, then catch it again. An essence such as that pumps new blood through an old heart. Do you comprehend? I nod. I do. I knew you would, he says. You have it, too. An arm around my shoulders, three more hands pinch my cheeks. Too bad you're not a woman. A grin... A wink, the moment nearly ruined, but some part of me still flattered. After the vows and the happy tears, he lifts his trunk to kiss me wetly on one ear. My son, he says. At the reception, for the first time, I see him dance. No wonder Mom can't get enough. You would think, with a household god, of great luck and strong starts yet that I wouldn't still be slaving behind this grease-smeared Burger King counter. To be honest, I'm 
in a dual job hell. Come night, yo no quiero Taco Bell. I finally ask him about this lack of riches, and he sighs and blinks those dewy eyes. Spermling, he wags his trunk. It don't work like that. Luck, okay, luck, is when you're driving in downtown Manhattan, fighting for every gap that opens and all that hurtling metal, and your car, it's been threatening to stall since the last toll booth on the Jersey Turnpike. And you made it, but your tank's on empty, and you beg that car, please don't die. And it's like it hears you, like it's packed with prana. And it goes 20 miles further than possible, and just when you feel rigor mortis in the gas pedal, there is a pump station at this corner that you didn't see seconds ago, and the $20 you thought you had dropped at the rest stop is in your pocket after all. All four hands spread wide. That's what luck is all about. You would think, given all the above, that I'd have never come home in the early a.m. to find Mom in the kitchen, dark, crouched over the cooking sherry, her silent tears revealed when the lights come on. What's wrong with me? she asks. Is there some little demon inside me that refuses to believe I deserve this? Why don't I want to be happy? I ask, is it the other wives? She shakes her head. How distracted he seems when he's present. How lost she seems when he's gone. Mothers, he grumps one morning, and pauses halo to reset his chin on his hands. No, not yours. Some mothers sure do hate to give up their sons. Did I ever tell you what my mother did to me? A dirty trick. It was, you know, long before time really got rolling, and I was playing with my kitten, and I played with her a little too rough, but I didn't mean to. See, it had only been a few years since Shiva first fused my head on. I came home, and my mother was bleeding from her bindi, and when I asked what's wrong, she says to me, whatever I do to any ladki, I do to her. How cruel a thing to do to a son. But I was still young, and didn't see it that way then. So I vowed to never, ever marry. Well, a few millenniums of celibacy will make you decide there's some consequences you can live with. So I took three wives. Take that, Mom. But you'd think by now she'd forgive me. Her unhappiness, well, sometimes it still comes through. He offered me the remains of his beer. I refused, then polished it off with a chug and lamented. Is it so hard for a mother to want eternal happiness for her dumbo-headed boy? I haven't shared a word of this with Mom, and won't. I look at these checks I drag home, compute how they add up with hers, and know we need every bit of luck we can hold on to. But one late, sleepless night... I googled my stepfather and gawked at hundreds of prettified statues and read about Ganesh Shaturthi, days of hymns and feastings, red silks and red ointment. The eleventh day, my stepdad's image submerged in the sea, symbolizing his journey home to Kailash, bad luck drawn away like pilot fish, following his wake. And I love him so, and I can't bring myself to ask him yet. Is it when he leaves 
that misfortune truly goes away. There you go. Big thank you, Mike, and big thank you, Kate. Thank you so much. Next up is Flash Fiction by Ahmed A. Khan. Ahmed is an IT professional infected with the writing bug, or so his website says. He was born and educated in India and currently living in Canada. In between those two places, he spent quite some time in the Middle East, Kuwait to be specific. His works, both fact and fiction, have appeared in numerous magazines in India, in Kuwait and in USA. Some of the magazines he's appeared in has been Murderous Intent, Another Realm, Alien Q, Cyber Oasis, Gateway SF, Jackhammer, Millennium SF, Strange Horizons. Narration for this story comes from Erin Hamilton. Erin actually runs her own podcast as well called The Girl Nerd. I will put links on to Erin's site and to Ahmed's site. So the Starship Sova and her oral delights says very proud to present. Elevator Episodes in Seven Genres by Ahmed A. Khan. Science Fiction What is the strongest material known to science? The science teacher asked her fourth graders. John raised his hand. The stuff that's used to make the cables for the space elevator? Correct. Can you tell me what it's called? Mmm. Um. Okay, I'll tell you this one time. The space elevator cables are made of carbon nanotubes. Fantasy. My father says it's made of unicorn hairs, Chris said. Humor. I don't like this space elevator, mumbled Asha. Well, you are always free to take the stairs, the teacher said. Mystery. After class, the teacher, her name was Daniela, went home to pack. She was leaving today on a vacation trip to the moon via the elevator. Wish Jim and I had not separated, she thought for the thousandth time of her ex-husband. He would have enjoyed the trip. She was remembering her first trip. What better place than the moon for a honeymoon, Jim had said. At that time, the space elevator didn't launch directly from Earth as it did now. One had to take a shuttle to the space station and catch the elevator from there. It had been fun all the way. The present trip was her attempt at, what, catching elusive moments of happiness? Self-inflicted pain? Guilt trip? Exorcism? It was an impulsive decision, and irrespective of her motivation, she was sticking by it. She locked up her apartment and stepped out of the building, her scanty luggage strapped to her back. It was a cold and windy day. She thrust her hands in the pockets of her coat, turned left on the street, and made her way to the intersection. As she walked, she had an uneasy feeling that she was being followed. She quickly turned her head and saw a man dressed in a long blue overcoat, face muffled in a scarf, duck behind a store entrance. Suddenly afraid, she walked faster, reached the intersection, and hailed a cab. Elevator terminal, she said as she quickly clambered into the cab. The driver nodded, started the meter, and the cab started moving. She turned back to see the man in blue hail a cab, too. Who was he, and why was he following her? Should she call the police? But what's the use? It would only delay her and may even make her miss her elevator. She would be at the terminal in a few minutes, and after that would be out of this city, out of this world, for two weeks. Soon, Daniela was in the space elevator, waiting for it to start its long journey. 
She was strapped down in her bucket seat. Another bucket seat lay vacant beside her. She looked at the watch. The elevator should be leaving in about ten minutes. She felt an excitement building up within her, a sense of adventure she had not felt since she was eighteen, ten years ago. For a moment she was alone in the elevator, but she knew that one more passenger would be joining her soon. The elevator carried two and only two passengers on each of its trips. I hope I have an interesting companion, she thought. Just then the front door of the elevator slid open and her fellow traveler entered. It was the man in blue. You! Daniela shrieked when she saw his face. Jim smiled his characteristically impish smile as he strapped himself in the seat beside her. The elevator started with a jolt, and the increasing acceleration pressed them into their seats. Mysticism and spirituality. I had to get you alone for a few days so that we could uh, sort out our problems without the outside world intruding upon us, Jim explained later. It had been an hour since the elevator had left its anchor pad on Earth. The acceleration had eased, and they were nearing zero G. I think it was fate. God wanted us to get together again. A month ago, I was about to enter the travel agency downtown in order to explore some vacation options when I saw you coming out of the side door. You were as lovely as ever. You seemed preoccupied and didn't see me. The travel agent's a friend, so when I asked him about you, he told me you were leaving for the moon. As soon as I heard this, my vacation plans were made. I booked the same elevator for myself, and here I am. But why were you following me today? Oh, you know me. I like playing tricks. I just wanted to scare you a bit, I think. Horror. The space elevator gave a lurch and stopped. Both of them looked up at the view screen. It just showed the blackness of space, interspersed with pinpoints of starlight. The communicator came alive. We are sorry to report that there has been a malfunction in the elevator. Please do not panic. Rescue is on its way. Sex and romance. Daniela looked back at Jim, and Jim looked back at her. Suddenly, as if by tacit agreement, she and Jim undid the straps of their chairs and were in each other's arms, kissing and being kissed passionately. The communicator sputtered again. Are you okay? Please respond. Rescue shuttle is being sent out. The control tower must have been surprised to hear two voices, a male and a female, say simultaneously, Don't bother! And, after a pause, a male voice added, At least not for a couple of hours. Mainstream. My teacher's going to the moon on the space elevator, John informed his parents at supper. There ain't no such thing as a space elevator, growled his father. It's all a hoax. Shorter Days podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the leading provider in spoken word entertainment. Audible has over 35,000 titles to choose from to be downloaded and played back anywhere, just like Starship Sofa. So log on to audiblepodcast.com slash sofa to get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today. Again, go to audiblepodcast.com slash sofa for your free audiobook. Now, I want to recommend an Orville book today, and it's just, I am loving it. I'm deep in the thrones of it. Actually, there's two. I'm actually just finished, and I want to talk about it, a George R.R. R. Martin one, a little bit later on. But I got I took two to Bath and to the Lake District where we were doing the camping. One of them was 
Ken Shules and I'm actually becoming a real big fan of Ken Shules I knew he had this kind of one book out there and I had a look on Audible and there it was you know what I mean so I thought oh get myself that and it's called Lamentation and it's just and it's fantasy as well which is well it's actually it's a strange kind of blend because they've got like automatic automaton men in there as well but they've also got kind of lots of fantasy elements which you kind of normally associate with kind of the fantasy stories but it's all mixed up in this you know great story you know they've they've got these kind of gypsy pirates or gypsy warriors out there that kind of sprinkle dust on them and turn invisible and then you've got these automatic steam piston robot men and it's just a big mash mix mash of you know a fantastic story in the kind of the middle of it you've got some great you know Ken Schultz has got this kind of gift of you know bringing these kind of characters to light and what a kind of mix match you know bunch of characters he's got there in this lamentation what a story Ken Shores is becoming like one like a big favorite writer of mine and you know this audible version is it's got loads of different and what I like about it is it's got different narrators for the different characters but it's in some ways that could be a little bit heavy-handed but I'm quite, you know, surprised the way Audible's done it, and it's very subtle. I mean, these are kind of top narrators, you know. You've got Stefan Rudnicki in there, and I actually forget the gentleman's name, but the guy that did the, you know, the in the, the massive tomb that is Anathem, he's in there as well, you know. And you kind of you sit for thirty odd hours listening to Anathem, you kind of recognise his voice straight away. And as soon as I heard it up, it all works together because he's actually. He's playing, or he's, his narration part is like a, a little monk, little priest lad who's been on the teachings of some some faith, and it just all sits together. So do look out for Lamentation by Audible.com, my pick of the week for Audible. Next up is Science News by JJ, none other than JJ Campanella. Jim. Greetings and salutations, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this August 2009 installment of Science News Update. I'm your jet-lagged host for the evening, Jim Campanella. Why am I jet-lagged, you ask? Well, I've just returned from the American Society of Plant Biology Conference in Honolulu, Hawaii. I live on the east coast of the U.S., and a one-way trip to Hawaii is 12 hours. My wife and kitties accompanied me on my little sojourn, and I have now come up with a new definition of hell, that is, traveling for 12 hours in a small enclosed space with no escape, with a one-year-old and a three-year-old. I will not go into the painful detail. I will just tell you that if there was not a sky marshal aboard the airplane, a lynch mob may have been convened against us amongst the other passengers. I just find it ironic that to reach the paradise of Hawaii, I had to first run the hellish gauntlet of the trip itself. But we are not here to talk about my personal traumas. We are here to chat about science. I have a very cool story to report from the conference itself, but let me make some general overview comments about scientific conferences for those of you who are not in the know or never been to one. Essentially, a scientific conference is in many ways the equivalent of a science fiction convention. If you attend an SF convention, like Comic-Con in San Diego, You do not go there intending to lie out on the beach or surf. You have your own fan agenda, which involves learning more about SF, going to panel talks, watching videos and movies, chatting with other fans, etc. Well, nutcases like me who go to serious scientific conventions, even in a paradise like Hawaii, are there to listen to the latest scientific breakthroughs, 
talk to colleagues, present their own data to peers, and yes, even talk to vendors about the latest products. And, like the SF geek, a serious scientist is going to go to the talks and watch PowerPoint presentations on esoterica and spend minimal time on the beach or in the sun. Seriously, most of the time I was out swimming or on the beach was the evening, and I was not the only one. We are in some ways a very sad bunch, but that is what it takes to be a scientist. I cannot tell you how many of the speakers I heard actually apologized to their listeners for keeping them from the sunny climbs outside the convention center meeting rooms. So there are a couple of things to note in plant science at the moment. One of the big ones, there seem to be many more genomes that are having their DNA sequenced. Wahoo! The apple, sugar cane, prickly pears, the pawpaw of all things. For those of you unfamiliar with the pawpaw, it's a fruit common to the southern U.S., which tastes kind of like a cross between a citrus fruit and a banana, and has a texture kind of like custard. Most people have never tasted or even seen a pawpaw, although it is mentioned prominently in a song in the Disney animated film The Jungle Book, which takes place in India, where the pawpaw tree does not grow. Anyway, the researchers doing the pawpaw work insisted that the fruit was on the verge of becoming a major economic crop. That has yet to be seen, in my opinion. You may ask, why bother with this sequencing stuff? Well, there's a very simple answer. Money. If a crop makes money, then it can always be genetically improved, so it will make more money. For instance, if you can sequence a genome and discover some minor variations that can be tweaked to make the plant no longer susceptible to root rot from fungus, then you will make back your investment many, many times. Of course, from a scientific point of view, sequencing genomes is very important because of the basic genetic research it involves, even if we ignore the money issues. One of the most interesting crops being sequenced is Miscanthus giganteus. I believe the common name is giant switchgrass. The presentation that I heard on this grass was done by Dr. Stephen Barling from the University of Illinois. You may think this grass rather uninteresting, but it is now being grown as a source of biofuel, and a much better source than corn, by the way. The giant grass can be grown in places where food crops like corn don't grow. It grows to be 10 feet tall with a huge amount of biomass. And unlike corn, which is a valuable food crop, Miscanthus is only useful as an ornamental grass at the moment. I actually have some huge specimens out in the front of my house right now. Proposals for use of the grass as a biofuel have gone in two different directions. Some scientific groups have proposed using the grass itself as fuel because it is so big in its biomass. You can compact it and burn it directly as fuel like you would coal. Others have suggested using the grass to make cellulosic fuel or alcohol like we do with corn. In either case, a better understanding of the genetic makeup of the plant would go a long way toward optimizing its growth. One cool thing about the ASPB conference this year was that it was co-hosted by a whole series of other organizations, many of whom are on the Pacific Rim, like the Japanese Society of Plant Biologists and the Australian Society of Plant Physiologists. One of the most interesting of the co-hosts was the Phycological Society of America, what is phycology, you ask? Well, it's the study of algae. This may sound boring, but it does have some really interesting aspects. For example, 
I sat in a plenary set of talks on coral reefs and their interactions with algae. That doesn't sound like it would go in a very interesting direction, but you'd be surprised. The talk was given by an Aussie, Dr. Lawrence McCook of Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority, and it really grabbed my attention. The title of the talk was Coral Reef Resilience, Degradation, and Climate Change, The Role of Algal Ecology. Apparently, reefs are quite sensitive to changes in the temperature of the ocean around them. If the temp goes up a few degrees from normal, the reefs literally bleach. Usually a healthy reef can come back from this bleaching and revive itself to normal. If the temperature goes up higher than a few degrees, then the reefs bleach and die permanently. Apparently, whether you agree with the source of global warming or not, the temperature of the oceans has been increasing in the last several decades, leading to mass bleaching of corals. The real problem has not necessarily been with temps rising so high that they kill the coral outright. The problem has been with increases of just a few degrees. If that happens, the coral is bleached and would normally come back after a few months and revive. But what has been happening is is that huge mats of algae have been growing on these sickly coral reefs. Normally, the reef is in perfect balance with the algae, allowing a bit of growth of the algae, and you could actually see this visually, but no more. When the reef is bleached and injured, the algae gets out of control and can cover massive areas of the reef. I mean, to, to many inches thick. You could have mats that are up to feet thick, depending on the type of coral that's present. Once they do that, the reef does not recover and pretty much dies off permanently. Uh, the basis of these alga growing really is a consequence of the bleaching. McCook makes this point, quote, Our observations become critical in the context of climate change. Increasing severity and frequency of mass bleaching of corals means alkyl dominance becomes the norm for reefs. An understanding of ecology of reef algae is therefore a major priority, including the impacts of climate change on the algae themselves and algal effects on coral regeneration and recruitment. It is surprising sometimes what the secondary effects of an environmental change are. No one would have predicted the close interaction between the coral and the algal species could be so altered by just a couple of degrees of change in the water temp. Another presentation took me by complete surprise by taking a left turn completely off the highway of plant molecular biology. Let me explain. Dr. Winslow Briggs is the grand old man of plant photomorphogenesis. He's from the Carnegie Institute in Washington, and he gave a talk entitled The Love Domains of the Phototropins in Loyal Service to Photoreceptors in Bacteria, Fungi, Algae, and Higher Plants. Don't let that title fool you. It really is an interesting topic. Before you skip the rest of my segment and go listening to the main story of the evening, be patient for just a moment. There is a payoff here. Really. First, a bit of background. What is phototropin? Well, it may or may not be obvious, but plants are sensitive to the light in the world about them. They get their cues for growing and development from the intensity and quality of the light that falls upon them. Everything from the germination of seeds to the opening of pores on the leaves is affected by light. The blue light receptors in plants have been dubbed phototropins. Most of these fall into the chemical category of the flavoproteins. The flavoproteins mediate phototropism responses in higher plants. Phototropins specifically will cause stems to bend toward light, 
and stomata to open. Stomata are, again, those pores on the leaves of plants. Also, phototropins are important in chloroplast movements inside the cells. They also mediate the first changes in stem elongation in blue light. Now, Dr. Briggs has been working for years examining the phototropin proteins and doing experiments to determine what part of the protein is actually responsible for this light sensitivity. He and his research group have found that these molecules all have a common structure. Here is a quote from Briggs. Hold your breath. It's a bit technical. Try to follow. Quote, All the phototropins contain two highly similar chromophore domains designated love 1 and love 2. Both use a flavin molecule, FMN or FAD, as the chromophore. The love domain is composed of five beta sheets plus alpha helices to form a structure tightly enclosing the ring structure of the flavins. Unquote. The upshot of that turgid statement is that structurally there is part of these plant proteins that has been discovered that is light-sensitive enough to turn the protein on and off, and this is called the love domain, L-O-V. So what? This seems like a technical detail that you, the layman, can certainly live without, right? Let's go on to the cool part then. Briggs also discovered, after doing a bunch of computer data mining experiments in genetic databases, that you can find the same light-sensitive structure in other organisms like algae and fungi. That's not really a surprise. We already know that algae are light-sensitive since they go through photosynthesis, just like plants. Even fungi we've known for quite a while are photosensitive, even though they're not plants. But Briggs kept looking and discovered something even odder. He looked in animals and found nothing, which is not that hard to believe, We are evolutionarily pretty far from plants, algae, and fungi. But when he looked at bacteria, he found a large number of proteins with that same light-sensitive love domain. Here's the quote from Briggs. Quote, In bacteria, we found that the love domain proteins are a diverse group with many different functions and include histidine kinases, cyclase phosphatases, and different kinds of transcription factors. Unquote. At first, Briggs was puzzled. The obvious question was, what the heck are light-sensitive domains doing in bacteria? Why do bacteria need to sense light anyway? Well, he got a bit of an answer to that. He started collaborating with a research group in South America, and that was led by Dr. Gaston Paris. And they study the bacteria Brucella. Now, Brucella is not a problem in the U.S. or most of Europe because we pasteurize our milk and cheeses. However, brucellosis is a problem where pasteurization is not the norm and raw milk is drunk, especially in isolated farm communities and places like the Andes. Brucellosis is characterized by profuse sweating and joint and muscle pain. It's a nasty disease and it's been recognized in animals, including humans, since the 19th century. It appears that there is a love domain in a brucella histidine kinase. Now, kinases are proteins that are famous for being part of signal transduction in cells. That means that they literally are used for signaling inside a cell by attaching phosphates to other molecules. Briggs could not imagine what the light-sensing domain was doing on these bacterial kinase, so he did the thing any good molecular biologist would do. He mutated the gene so that it could no longer make a light-sensing protein. Then he put it back into the brucella, and tested to see if there was any change in the bacteria. Lo and behold, there was. 
it appeared the mutated love kinase was important for virulence. In other words, the mutated brucella did not give severe brucellosis like its normal counterpart. The only conclusion that Briggs and Paris could come up with was that the light sensing actually played a role in just how virulent the brucella infection became. In fact, a major medical observation that doctors have been seeing for years was finally explained. People infected with brucellosis often had what are called undulate fevers. That means that the fevers actually went up and down. Oddly, the fever goes up in the day and down at night. Now that we know about the existence of that love domain in the brucella, we suspect that is what is happening with the fever is a direct effect of light. Light may be causing the bacteria to become more virulent during the day. Briggs has found that love domain in proteins of dozens of bacterial species. And in the process, he's opened up a whole new area of experimental biology that did not exist previously. Bacterial photophysiology. In the future, you may be treated with a combination of antibiotic drugs for an infection along with light, or lack of light for that matter. If you think all of that is absurd and that light could never penetrate far enough to affect a bacteria, just hold your hand up to a light bulb. The light passes through your hand, doesn't it? Your hand is lit up. It's not that hard to believe that light can pass deep enough into tissue to actually affect bacteria. I just realized this is not the first time I've heard about light in relation to infection. You may groan, but if you send your mind back to the original Star Trek series, remember the episode Operation Annihilate? While on the planet Deneva, Spock is infected by an alien life form. It looks like a single-celled organism that flies, and it kind of resembles a brain cell. Remember how he's cured? By being exposed to intense blinding white light though only UV was needed. Uh, by the way, despite what Dr. McCoy says, Spock potentially would have been just as blinded by intense UV as by the whole spectrum. I myself have seen lab mates debilitated for days by direct ocular exposure to mild UV light. Sorry, I got a bit sidetracked there. But isn't that cool? I told you it was worth it to be patient. I always think that it's amazing when you're studying one thing and your experimental results lead you in a completely different direction. I've got one quick update before I sign off, and it has nothing to do with plant biology. You may remember months ago, I was talking about life extension and what you needed to do to live longer. One of the stories I mentioned was caloric restriction, which seems to extend the life of mice. Because caloric restriction has not been tested on primates, there have been many naysayers who have said that it probably won't work in humans or monkeys or apes to extend life. Well, it appears that they are wrong. Doctors Ricky Coleman and Richard Weindruck, both of the University of Wisconsin, just published their findings in an article in the Journal of Science a couple of weeks ago. Their 20-year study found that rhesus monkeys fed a nutritious, low-calorie diet have fewer age-related diseases than counterparts on a normal diet. The study began in 1989 with 30 adult male monkeys. In 1994, 30 female and 16 more male monkeys were added to boost statistical power. The monkeys were 7 to 14 years old when they entered the study. Since rhesus monkeys live on average 27 years in captivity, it has taken this long to determine whether cutting calories by 30% would fend off aging and death. 
Over the course of the study, monkeys on the full-calorie diet were three times more likely to die from age-related diseases than monkeys that ate 30% fewer calories. Another study published online July 8th in Nature may provide hope for people who want to live longer but don't want to tightly control those calories. Researchers at the National Institute on Aging prolonged the lifespan of elderly mice, back to mice, by feeding the mice high doses of rapamycin. This is a drug commonly used to suppress the immune system of organ transplant recipients. The drug is the first molecular mimic of caloric restriction proven to extend lifespan in mammals. You may remember that I also mentioned the highly touted compound from red wine months ago called resveratrol. That is still being tested, but other studies have failed to prolong lifespan of mice on a normal diet with the compound. I guess that was too good to be true. Well, that's about all from me. Aloha and mahalo. As always, take care, and I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. There you go. Jim, thank you so much for that. Link on the gym site. Do pop over there and say hello to Mr. JJ Campanella. So we come on to the main fiction, and it's by none other than Ted Kuzmatka. What a great writer this is. You know what I mean? Like you say, he's came on the show once before with the story, and this one, The Prophet of Flaws, is just, you know what I mean? It's just one of them stories where you just kind of sit back and just enjoy the ride. You know what I mean? What a skill this guy's got. Just to give you a little heads up with Ted, since 2005, Ted's fiction has been published in Asimov's Fantasy and Science Fiction, Subterranean, and elsewhere. His work has been long-listed for the Nebula Award, serialised on a radio station and reprinted in six of the best-year anthologies, translated into Russian, Hebrew, Polish and Czech. He now lives with his family on the north coast of Indiana, not far from Chicago. Narration of the day comes from David Burkhead. David was born in Dallas, Texas and has lived in Germany for almost 10 years. Before coming to Germany, David was involved in a number of student films while studying IT at the University of Arizona. David's mother was a producer and presenter for local television and often used David for productions. He was also the voice of San Francisco's movie line. Since coming to Germany, David has been involved in business English training, specialising in presentation and telephone training. So the Starship Sofa and her oral delight is very proud to present. The Prophet of Flores by Ted Kosmatka. If this is the best of all possible worlds, what are the others like? Voltaire. As a boy, Paul played God in the attic above his family's garage. That's what his father called it. Playing God, the day he found out. That's what he called it, the day he smashed it all down. Paul built the cages out of discarded two-by-fours he found behind the garage, and a quarter-inch mesh he bought from the local hardware store. When his father was away, speaking at a scientific conference on divine clandestics, Paul began constructing his laboratory from plans he'd drawn during the last day of school. Because he wasn't old enough to use his father's power tools, he had to use a handsaw to cut the wood for the cages. He used his mother's sturdy black scissors to snip the wire mesh. He borrowed hinges from old cabinet doors, and he borrowed nails from the rusty coffee can that hung over his father's unused workbench. One evening, his mother heard the hammering and came out to the garage. "'What are you doing up there?' she asked." 
speaking in careful English, peering up to the rectangle of light that spilled down from the attic. Paul stuck his head through the opening, all spiky hair and sawdust. I'm just playing around with some tools, he said, which was in some sense the truth, because he couldn't lie to his mother, not directly. Which tools? Just a hammer and some nails? She stared up at him, her delicate face a broken Chinese doll. Pieces of porcelain reclued subtly out of line. Be careful, she said, and he understood she was talking both about the tools and about his father. I will. The days turned into weeks as Paul worked on the cages. Because the materials were big, he built the cages big, less cutting that way. In reality, the cages were enormous. Over-engineered structures ridiculously outsized for the animals they'd be holding. They weren't mouse cages so much as mouse cities, huge tabletop-sized enclosures that could have housed German shepherds. He spent most of his paper route money on the project, buying odds and ends that he needed, sheets of plexi, plastic water bottles, and some small dowels of wood he would use for door latches. While the other children in the neighborhood were playing basketball or witterdandu, Paul worked. He bought exercise wheels and built walkways. He hung loops of yarn that the mice could climb to various platforms. The mice themselves he bought from a pet store near his paper route. Most were white feeder mice for the snakes, but a couple were more colorful, fancy variety. And there were even a few English mice, sleek, long-bodied, show mice with big tulip ears and glossy coats. He wanted a diverse population, so he was careful to buy different kinds. While he worked on their permanent homes, he kept the mice in little aquariums stacked on a table in the middle of the room. On the day he finished the last of the big cages, he released the mice into their new habitats one by one. The first explorers on a new continent. To mark the occasion, he brought his friend John Long over, whose eyes grew wide as he saw what Paul had made. "You built all this?" John asked. "Yeah." "It must have taken you a long time, months." My parents don't let me have pets. Neither do mine, Paul answered. But anyway, these aren't pets.、Uh, what are they? An experiment. What kind of experiment? I haven't figured that out yet. Mister Finlay stood at the projector, marking a red ellipse on the clear plastic sheet. Projected on the wall, it looked like a crooked half smile between the X and the Y axes. This represents the number of daughter atoms, and this. He drew a mirror image of the first ellipse. This is the number of parent atoms. He placed the marker on the projector and considered the rows of students. Can anyone explain what the point of intersection represents? Darren Michaels in the front row raised his hand. It's the element's half-life. Exactly. In what year was radiometric dating invented? 1906. By whom? Rutherford. What method did he use? Uranium lead. No. Jeremy, can you enlighten us? He measured helium as an intermediate decay product of uranium. Good.
So then, who used uranium lead method? That was Boltwood in 1907. And how were these initial results viewed? Uh, with skepticism. By whom? By the evolutionists. Good. Mr. Finley turned towards Paul. Paul, in what year did Darwin write on the origin of species? 1867, Paul said. Yes, and in what year did Darwin's theory finally lose the confidence of the larger scientific community? That was 1932. Anticipating the next question, Paul continued. When Cole Horster invented the potassium-argon dating, the new dating method proved the Earth wasn't as old as evolutionists thought. And in what year was the theory of evolution finally debunked completely? 1954, when Willard F. Libby invented carbon-14 dating at the University of Chicago. He won the Nobel Prize in 1960 when he used carbon dating to prove, once and for all, that the Earth was 5,800 years old. Paul wore a white lab coat when he entered the attic. It was one of his father's old coats, so he had to cut the sleeves to fit his arms. Paul's father was a doctor, the Ph.D. kind. He was blonde and big and successful. He'd met Paul's mother after grad school while consulting for a Chinese research firm. They had worked on the same project for a while, but there was never any doubt that Paul's father was the bright light of the family, the genius, the famous man. He was also crazy. Paul's father liked breaking things. He broke telephones, he broke walls, and he broke tables. He broke promises not to hit again. One time, he broke bones. And the police were called by the ER physicians who did not believe the story about Paul's mother falling down the stairs. They did not believe the weeping woman of porcelain who swore her husband had not touched her. Paul's father was a force of nature, a cataclysm, as unpredictable as a comet strike or a volcanic eruption. The attic was a good place to hide, and Paul threw himself into his hobby. Paul studied his mice as though they were Goodall's chimps. He documented their social interactions in a green spiral notebook. He found that within the large habitats they formed packs like wolves, with a dominant male and a dominant female. A structured social hierarchy involving mating privileges, territory, and almost ritualized displays of submission by males of lower rank. The dominant male bred most of the females, and mice, Paul learned, could kill each other. Nature abhors a vacuum, and the mouse population expanded to fill the new worlds he'd created for them. The babies were born pink and blind, but as their fur came in, Paul began documenting the colors in his notebook. There were fawns, blacks, and greys, occasional agoutis. There were iris spotted and banded and broken marked. In the later generations, colors appeared that he hadn't purchased, and he knew enough about genetics to realize these were recessive genes cropping up. Paul was fascinated by the concept of genes, the stable elements through which God provided for the transfer of heritable characteristics from one generation to the next. In school, they called it divine transmission. 
Paul did research and found that pigmentation loci of mice were well mapped and well understood. He categorized his population by phenotype and found one mouse, a pale, dark-eyed cream, that must have been a triple recessive BBDDEE. It wasn't enough just to have them, to observe them, to run the Punnett squares. He wanted to do real science, and because real scientists use microscopes and electronic scales, Paul asked for these things for Christmas. Mice, he quickly discovered, did not readily yield themselves to microscopy. They tended to climb down from the stand. The electronic scale, however, proved useful. He weighed every mouse and kept meticulous records. He considered developing his own inbred strain, a line with some combination of distinctive characteristics. But he wasn't sure what characteristics to look for. He was going over his notebook when he saw it. January 17. Not a date, but a mouse. The 17th mouse born in January. He went to the cage and opened the door. A flash of sandy fur, and he snatched it up by its tail. A brindle specimen with large ears. There was nothing really special about the mouse. It was made different from the other mice, only by a mark in his notebook. Paul looked at the mark looked at the number he'd written there. Of the more than 90 mice in his notebook, January 17 was, by two full grams, the largest mouse he had ever weighed. In school, they taught him through science, you could decipher the truest meaning of God's words. God wrote the language of life in four letters, A, T, C, and G. That's not why Paul did it, though, not to get closer to God. He did it for the simplest reason, because he was curious. It was early spring before his father asked him what he spent his time doing in the attic. Just messing around. They were in his father's car on the way home from piano lessons. Your mother said you built something up there. Paul fought back a surge of panic. I built a fort a while ago. You're almost twelve now. Aren't you getting a little old for forts? Yeah, I guess I am. I don't want you spending all your time up there. All right. I don't want your grades slipping. Paul, who hadn't gotten a B in two years, said, All right. They rode the rest of the way in silence, and Paul explored the walls of his newly shaped reality, because he knew four shocks when he felt them. He watched his father's hands on the steering wheel. Though large for his age, like his father, Paul's features still favored his Asian mother, and he sometimes wondered if that was part of it. This thing between his father and him, this gulf he could not cross. Would his father have treated a freckled blonde son any differently? No, he decided. His father would have been the same. The same force of nature, the same cataclysm. He couldn't help being what he was. Paul watched his father's hand on the steering wheel. And years later, when he thought of his father, even after everything that happened, that's how he thought of him. That moment, frozen. Driving in the car, big hands on the steering wheel, a quiet moment of foreboding that wasn't false, but was 
merely what it was, the best it would ever be between them. What have you done? There was wonder in John's voice. Paul had snuck him up to the attic, and now Paul held Bertha up by her tail for John to see. She was a beautiful golden brindle, long whiskers twitching. She's the most recent generation, an F4. Uh, what does that mean? Paul smiled. She's akin to herself. That's a big mouse, the biggest yet. Fifty-nine grams, weighed at a hundred days old. The average weight is around forty. Paul put the mouse on John's hand. What have you been feeding her? John asked. Same as the other mice. Look at this. Paul showed him the charts he'd graphed, like Mr. Finchley, a gentle upward ellipse between the X and the Y axes, the slow upward climb in body weight from one generation to the next. One of my F2s tipped the scales at 45 grams, so I bred him to the biggest females, and they made more than 50 babies. I weighed them all at the 100 days and picked the biggest four. I bred them and did the same thing with the next generation, choosing the heaviest 100-day weights. I got the same bell curve distribution, only the bell shifted slightly to the right. Bertha was the biggest of them all. John looked at Paul in horror. That works? Of course it works. It's the same thing people have been doing with domestic livestock for the last 5,000 years. But this didn't take you thousands of years. No. Uh, it kind of surprised me. It works so well. This isn't even subtle. I mean, uh, look at her. She's only an F4. Imagine what an F10 might look like. That sounds like evolutionism. Don't be silly. This is just directional selection. With a diverse enough population, it's amazing what a little push can do. I, I mean, like, uh, think about it. I hacked off the bottom 95% of the bell curve for five generations now. Of course the mice got bigger. I probably have gone the other way if I wanted to, made them smaller. There's one thing that surprised me, though, um... Something I only noticed recently. What? When I started, at least half the mice were albino. Now it's down to about one in ten. Okay. I never consciously decided to select against that. So? So when I did culls, when I decided which ones to breed, sometimes the weights were about the same and I'd just pick. I think I just happened to pick one kind more than the other. So what's your point? So what if it happens that way in nature? What do you mean? Like the dinosaurs or woolly mammoths or cavemen. They were here once. We know that because we find their bones. But now they're gone. God made all life about 6,000 years ago, right? Yeah. But. Some of it isn't here anymore. Some died out along the way. It happened on a weekend. Bertha was pregnant. Obscenely. Monstrously. Paul had isolated her in one of the aquariums, an island unto herself, sitting on a table in the middle of the room. A little tissue box sat in the corner of her small glass cage, 
and Bertha had shredded bits of paper into a comfortable nest in which to give birth to the next generation of Goliath mice. Paul heard his father's car pull into the garage. He was home early. Paul considered turning off the attic lights, but knew it would only draw attention and his father's suspicion. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Instead, he waited, hoping. The garage was strangely quiet, only the ticking of the car's engine. Paul's stomach dropped when he heard the creak of his father's weight on the ladder. There was a moment of panic, and then a single hunted moment when Paul's eyes darted for a place to hide the cages. It was ridiculous. There was no place to go. What's that smell? his father asked as his head cleared the attic floor. He stopped and looked around. Oh... And that was all he said at first. That was all he said as he climbed the rest of the way. He stood there like a giant, taking it in. The single bare bulb draped his eyes in shadow. What's this? He said finally. His dead voice turned Paul's stomach to ice. What's this? Louder now, and something changed in the shadow of his eyes. Paul's father stomped towards him, above him. What's this? The words, more shriek than question now, spit flying from his mouth. I, I thought... A big hand shot out and slammed into Paul's chest, falling his t-shirt into a fist, yanking him off his feet. What the fuck is this? Didn't I tell you no pets? The bright light of the family, the famous man. They're not pets, they're... God, it fucking stinks up here. You brought these things into the house? You brought this vermin into the house? Into my house? The arm flexed, sending Paul backward into the cages, toppling one of the tables, wood and mesh crashing to the floor, the squeak of mice, twisting hinges. Months and months and months of work. His father saw Bertha's aquarium and grabbed it. He lifted it high over his head, and there was a moment when Paul imagined he could almost see it 
almost see Bertha inside and the babies inside her, countless generations that would never be born. Then his father's arm came down like a force of nature, like a cataclysm. Paul closed his eyes against the exploding glass, and all he could think of was, this is how it happens. This is exactly how it happens. And heterozygotes for cystic fibrosis are less susceptible to cholera, and people with a type A blood survive the plague at a higher frequency than other blood types, altering forever in a single generation the frequency of blood types in Europe, a process, some said, now being slow motion mimicked by the gene CKR5 and HIV. In his anthropology courses, Paul learned that all humans alive today could trace their ancestry back to Africa to a time almost 6,000 years ago, when the whole of human diversity existed within a single small population. And there had been at least two dispersions out of Africa, his professors said, if not more, a genetic bottleneck in support of the Diluvian flood theory. But each culture had its own beliefs. Muslims called it Allah, Jews, Yahweh. The science journals were careful not to call it God anymore but they spoke of an intelligent designer, an architect, lowercase a. Though in his heart of hearts, Paul figured it almost amounted to the same thing. Paul learned they'd scanned the brains of nuns looking for the God spot and couldn't find it. He learned about evolutionism, although long debunked by legitimate science. Adherents of evolutionism still existed, their beliefs enjoying a near immortality among the fallow fields of pseudoscience, cohabitating the fringe with older belief systems like astrology, phrenology, and acupuncture. Modern evolutionists believed the various dating systems were all incorrect, and they offered an assortment of unscientific explanations for how the isotope tests could all be wrong. In hushed tones, some even spoke of data tampering and conspiracies. The evolutionists ignored the accepted interpretation of the geological record. They ignored the miracle of the placenta and the irreducible complexity of the eye. During his junior and senior years, Paul studied archaeology. He studied the ancient remains of Homo erectus and Homo neanderthalensis. He studied the unmen. He studied afarensis and australopithecus and pan. In the world of archaeology, the line between man and unman could be fuzzy, but it was never unimportant. To some scientists, Homo erectus was a race of man long dead, a withered branch on the tree of humanity. To those more conservative, he wasn't man at all. He was other, a hiccup of the creator, an independent creation made from the same toolbox. But that was an extreme viewpoint. Mainstream science, of course, accepted the use of stone tools as a litmus test. Men made stone tools. Soulless beasts didn't. Of course, there were still arguments, even in the mainstream. The fossil KNMER 1470, found in Kenya, appeared so perfectly balanced between man and unman that a new category had to be invented, near man. The arguments could get quite heated, with both sides claiming anthropometric statistics to prove their case. 
Like a benevolent teacher swooping in to stop a playground fight, the signs of genetics arrived on the scene, occupying the exact point of intersection between Paul's two passions in life, genetics and anthropology. The field of paleometagenomics was born. Paul received a bachelor's degree in May and started a graduate program in September. Two years and an advanced degree later, Western Genomics flew him to the East Coast for a job interview. The company logo was a DNA double helix. Hands were shook over a glossy table. Three weeks after that, he was in the field in Tanzania, learning the proprietary techniques of extracting DNA from bones of 5,800 years old. Bones from the very dawn of the world. Two men stepped into the bright room. So this is where the actual testing is done. It was a stranger's voice, the accent, urban Australian. Paul lifted his eyes from the microscope and saw his supervisor, accompanied by an older man in a dark suit. Yes, Mr. Lyne said. The stranger shifted his weight to his teak cane. His hair was short and grey, parted neatly on the side. It never ceases to amaze, the stranger said, glancing around. How alike laboratories are across the world. Cultures who cannot agree on anything agree on this. How to design a centrifuge. Where to put the test tube brick. What color to paint the walls. White. Always. The bench top's black. Mr. Lyons only nodded. Paul stood, pulled off his latex gloves. Kevin McMaster, the stranger said, sticking out a hand. Pleased to make your acquaintance, Mr. Carlson. They shook. Paul, you can call me Paul. I apologize for interrupting your work, Gavin said. It's time I took a break anyway. I'll leave you two to your discussion, Mr. Lyons said, and excused himself. Please, Paul said, gesturing to a nearby work table. Take a seat. Gavin sank into the stool and set his briefcase on the table. I promise I won't take much of your time, he said. But I need to talk to you. We've been leaving messages for the last few days and... Oh, Paul's face changed. You're from... Yes. This is highly unusual for you to contact me here. I can assure you these are very unusual circumstances. Still, I'm not sure I like being solicited for one job while working at another. I can see there's been a misunderstanding. How's that? You called it a job. Consider it a consulting offer. Mr. McMaster, I'm very busy with my current work. I'm in the middle of several projects, and to be honest, I'm surprised Weston let you in through the door. Weston is already on board. I took the liberty of speaking to the management before contacting you today. How did you... Paul looked at him, and Gavin raised an eyebrow. With corporations, any question of how was usually rhetorical. The answer was always the same, and it always involved dollar signs. Of course, we'll match that bonus to you, mate. McMaster slid a check across the counter. Paul barely glanced at it. As I said, I'm in the middle of several projects now. One of the other samplers here would probably be interested. McMaster smiled. Normally, I'd assume that was a negotiating tactic. But that's not the case here, is it? No. 
I was like you once, Hale. Maybe I still am. Then you understand, Paul stood. I understand better than you think. It makes it easier sometimes when you come from money. Sometimes I think that only people who come from it realize how worthless it really is. That has not been my experience. If you'll excuse me, politeness was like a wall, a thing he'd learned from his mother. Please, Gavin said, before you leave, I have something for you. He opened the snaps on his briefcase and pulled out a stack of glossy eight by ten photographs. For a moment, Paul just stood there. Then he took the photos from Gavin's extended hand. Paul looked at the pictures. Paul looked at them for a long time. Gavin said these fossils were found last year on the island of Flores in Indonesia. Flores, Paul whispered, still studying the photos. I heard they found strange bones there. I didn't know anybody had published. It's because we haven't, not yet, anyway. These dimensions can't be right. A six-inch ulna—they're right. Paul looked at him. Why me? And just like that, the wall was gone. What lived behind it had a hunger in its belly. Why not? It was Paul's turn to raise an eyebrow. Because you're good, Gavin said. There are other samplers just as good. Because you're young and you don't have a reputation to risk, or one to stand on, Gavin sighed. Because I don't know if archaeology was ever meant to be as important as it has become. Will that do for an answer? We live in a world where zealots have become scientists. Tell me, boy, are you a zealot? No. That's why. Or close enough. There were a finite number of unique creations at the beginning of the world, a finite number of species which has since that time decreased dramatically through extinction. Speciation is a special event outside the realm of natural processes, a phenomenon relegated to the moment of creation, and to the mysteries of Allah. Expert witness, heresy trials, Ankara, Turkey. The flight to Bali was seventeen hours, and another two to Flores by chartered plane. Then four hours by jeep over the steep mountains and into the heart of the jungle. To Paul, it might have been another world. Rain fell, stopped, then fell again, turning the road into a thing that had to be reasoned with. It's always like this, Paul asked. Nah, Gavin said. In the rainy season, it's much worse. Flores, Isle of Flowers. From the air, it had looked like a green ribbon of jungle thrust into the blue water, part of a rosary of islands between Australia and Java. The Wallace Line, a less arbitrary than any border on the map, lay kilometers to the west, toward Asia and the Empire of Placental Mammals. A stranger emperor ruled here. Paul was exhausted by the time they pulled into Rutang. He rubbed his eyes. Children ran alongside the jeep. Their faces, some a combination of Malay and Papuan, brown skin, strong white teeth, like a dentist's dream. The hill town crouched one foot in the jungle, one on the mountain. 
A valley flung itself from the edge of the settlement, a drop of kilometers. The men checked into their hotel. Paul's room was basic but clean, and Paul slept like the dead. The next morning, he woke, showered, and shaved. Gavin met him in the lobby. It's a bit rustic. I apologize, Gavin said. No, it's fine, Paul said. There was a bed and a shower. That's all I need. We use Rutang as a kind of、um, base camp for the dig. Our future accommodations won't be so luxurious. Back at the jeep, Paul checked his gear. It wasn't until he climbed into the passenger seat that he noticed the gun, its black leather holster duct taped to the driver's door. It hadn't been there the day before. Gavin caught him staring. These are crazy times we're living in, mate. This is a place history has forgotten till now. Recent events had made it remember. Oh,、uh, which events are those? Religious events, to some folks' view; political, to others. Gavin waved his hand. More than just scientific egos are at stake with this find. They drove north, descending into the valley and sloughing off the last presence of civilization. You're afraid somebody will kidnap these bones, Paul asked. Yeah, that's、uh, one of the things I'm afraid of. One. It's easy to pretend that it's just theories we're playing with, ideas dreamt up in some ivory tower between warring factions of scientists. Like it's all some kind of intellectual exercise. Gavin looked at him, his dark eyes grave. But then you see the actual bones, and you feel a weight in your hands. And sometimes, theories die between your fingers. The track down to the valley floor was all broken zigzags and occasional rounding turns. For long stretches, overhanging branches made the tunnel of the roadway, the jungle, a damp cloth slapping at the windshield. But here and there, that damp cloth was yanked aside, and out over the edge of the drop, you could see a valley, like Hollywood would love—an archetype to represent all valleys, jungle floor visible through the jungle haze. In those stretches of muddy road. A sharp left pull on the steering wheel would have gotten them there quicker, deader. Liang Bua, Gavin called their destination, the Cold Cave, and Gavin explained that was how they thought it happened. The scenario, the steamy jungle all around. So two or three of them went inside to get cool to sleep, or maybe it was raining and they went into the cave to get dry. Only the rain didn't stop, and the river flooded, as it sometimes still did, and they were trapped inside the cave by the rising waters, their drowned bodies buried in the mud and sediment. The men rode in silence for a while before Gavin said it. A third option Paul felt coming, or、oh, they were eaten there. Eaten by what? Homo homini lupus est, Gavin said. Man is a wolf to man. They crossed a swollen river, water rising from the bottom of the doors. For a moment, Paul felt the current grab the jeep and pull it. It was a close thing. Gavin cursing and white knuckled on the wheel, trying to keep them to the shallows. When they were past it, he said, "You've got to keep it to the north. If you slide a few feet off straight, the whole bugger'll go tumbling down river." Paul didn't ask him how he knew. Beyond the river was a camp. Researchers in wide-brimmed hats and bandanas, young and old, two or three shirtless. A short-haired woman wearing a shirt 
sat on a log outside her tent, the one feature unifying them all, black dirt coating good boots. Every head followed the jeep, and when it pulled to a stop, a small crowd gathered to help unpack. Gavin introduced him around, eight researchers plus two laborers still in the cave. Australian mostly, Indonesian, one American. Herpetology, mate, one of them said when he shook Paul's hand. Small, stocky, red-bearded, he couldn't have been more than twenty-two. Paul forgot his name the moment he heard it, but the introduction, herpetology, mate, stuck with him. That's my specialty, the man continued. I got mixed up in this because of Professor McMaster here, University of New England, Australia. His smile was two feet wide under a sharp nose that pointed at his own chin. Paul liked him instantly. When they finished unpacking the jeep, Gavin turned to Paul. Now I think it's time we made the most important introductions, he said. It was a short walk to the cave. Jag-toothed limestone jutted from the jungle, an overhanging vine, and beneath that, a dark mouth. The stone was the brown white of old ivory. Cool air enveloped him, and entering Liangbois was a distant process of stepping down. Once inside, it took Paul's eyes a moment to adjust. The chamber was thirty meters wide, open to the jungle in a wide crescent. Mud floor, high domed ceiling. There was not much to see at first. In the far corner, two sticks angled from the mud, and when he looked closer, Paul saw the hole. Is that it? That's it. Paul took off his backpack and stripped the white paper suit out of its plastic wrapper. Who else has touched it? Talfit, Margaret, me. I'll need blood samples from everybody for comparison assays. DNA contamination. Yeah. We stopped the dig when we realized the significance. Still, I'll need blood samples from anybody who has dug here. Anybody who came anywhere near the bones. I'll take the samples myself tomorrow. I understand. Is there anything else you need? Solitude. Paul smiled. I don't want anyone in the cave for this part. Gavin nodded and left. Paul broke out his tarp and hooks. It was best if the sampler was the person who dug the fossils out of the ground, or better yet, if the DNA samples were taken when the bones were still in the ground. Less contamination that way. And there was always contamination, no matter what precautions were taken, no matter how many tarps, no matter how few people worked at the site. There was still always contamination. Paul slid down into the hole. Flashlight strapped to his forehead, white paper suit slick on the moist earth. From his perspective, he couldn't tell what the bones were, only that they were bones half buried in the earth. From his perspective, that's all that mattered. The material was soft, unfossilized. He'd have to be careful. It took nearly seven hours. He snapped two dozen photographs, careful to keep track of which samples came from which specimens. Whoever these things were, they were small. He sealed the DNA samples into small sterile lozenges for transport. It was night when he climbed from under the tarp. Outside the cave, Gavin was the first to find him in the firelight. Are you finished? 
For tonight, I have six different samples from at least two different individuals. Shouldn't take more than a few days. McMaster handed him a bottle of whiskey. Uh, isn't it a little early to celebrate? Celebrate? You've been working in the grave all night. In America, don't they drink after wakes? That night, over the campfire, Paul listened to the jungle sounds and to the voices of scientists, feeling history congeal around him. Suppose it isn't, Jack was saying. Jack was a thin American and very drunk. Suppose it isn't in the same lineage with us. Then what would that mean? The red-bearded herpetologist groaned. His name was James. Not more than that doctrine of descent bullshit, he said. Then what is it? someone added. They passed the drink around, eyes occasionally drifting to Paul like he was a priest coming to grant absolution. His sample kit, just an artifact of his priestcraft. Paul swigged the bottle when it came his way. They finished off the whiskey long ago. This was some local brew bought by some laborers, distilled from rice. Paul swallowed fire. Yellow-haired man saying, It's the truth. But Paul had missed part of the conversation, and for the first time he realized how drunk they all were. James laughed at something, and the woman with the white shirt turned and said, Some people have nicknamed it the Hobbit. What? Floors mean the Hobbit. Little people three feet tall. Tolkien would be proud, a voice contributed. A mandible, a fairly complete cranium, parts of a right leg and a left innominate. Uh, but what is it? Hey, are you staying on? The question was out there for two beats before Paul realized it was aimed at him. The woman's eyes were brown and searching across the fire. Yeah, he said. A few more days. Then the voice again. But what is it? Paul took another swallow, trying to cool the voice of panic in his head. Paul learned about her during the next couple of days, the girl with the white shirt. Her name was Margaret. She was twenty-eight, Australian, some fraction aborigine on her mother's side, but you could only see it for sure in the mouth. The rest of her could have been Dutch, English, whatever. But that full mouth, teeth like the Rutang children, teeth like a dentist's dream. She tied her brown hair back from her face so it didn't hang in her eyes when she worked in the hole. This was her sixth dig, she told him. This is the one. She sat on the stool while Paul took her blood, a delicate index finger extended, red pearl rising to spill her secrets. Most archaeologists go a whole lifetime without a big find, she said. Maybe you get one. Probably none. But this is the one I get to be part of. What about the leakies? Paul asked, dabbing her finger with cotton. Bah! She waved at him in mock disgust. They get extra. Blood canities of archaeology. Despite himself, Paul laughed. This brings us to the so-called doctrine of common descent, whereby each species is seen as a unique and individual creation. Therefore, all men, living and dead, are descended from a common one-time creational event. 
To be outside of this lineage, no matter how similar in appearance, is to be other than man. Journal of Heredity That evening, Paul helped Gavin pack the jeep for a trek back up to Ruteng. I'm driving our laborers back to town, Gavin told him. They work one week on, one week off. You want me to take your samples with me? Paul shook his head. Can't. There are stringent protocols for the chain of possession. Where are they now? Paul patted the cargo pocket on his pant leg. So, when you get those samples back, what happens next? I'll hand them over to an evaluation team. You don't test them yourself? I'll assist, but there are strict rules. I test animal DNA all the time, and the equipment is the same. But Genus Homo requires a special license and oversight. All right, mate. I'll be back tomorrow evening to pick you up. Gavin went to the jeep and handed Paul the sat phone. In case anything happens while I'm gone. Uh, do you think something will? Nah, Gavin said. Then, I don't know. Paul fingered the sat phone, a dark block of plastic the size of a shoe. What are you worried about? To be honest, bringing you here has brought attention we didn't want yet. I received a troubling call today. So far, we've shuffled under the radar, but now... Now we've flown into an outside tech, and uh, people want to know why. Of what? What people? Official people. Indonesia is suddenly very interested. Are you worried they'll shut down the dig? Gavin smiled. Have you studied theology? Why? I've long been fascinated by the figure of Abraham. Are you familiar with Abraham? Of course, Paul said, unsure where this was going. From this one sheepherder stems the entire natural history of monotheism. He's at the very foundation of all three Abrahamic faiths, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. When Jews, Christians, and Muslims get on their knees for their one true God, it is to Abraham's God they pray. Gavin closed his eyes, and still there's such fighting over steeples. Uh, what does this have to do with the dig? The word prophet traces back to the Greek word prophetes. In Hebrew, the word is Nabi. I think Abraham Henschel said it best when he wrote, The prophet is the man who feels fiercely. What do you think, Paul? Do you think prophets feel fiercely? Uh, why are you asking me this? Oh, never mind. Gavin smiled again and shook his head. Age just the rambling of an old man. You never answered if you thought they'd shut down the dig. We come into their land, their territory. We come into this place and we find bones that contradict their beliefs. What do you think might happen? Anything? Contradict their beliefs, Paul said. What do you believe about these bones? You never said. I don't know. They could be pathological. That's what they said about the first Neanderthal bones, except they kept finding them. It could be microcephaly. What kind of microcephaly makes you three feet tall? The odd skull shape and the small body size could be unrelated. Pygmies aren't unknown to these islands. There are no pygmies this small. But perhaps 
two things together. Perhaps the bones are just a microcephalic representation of the local... His voice trailed off. Gavin sighed. He looked suddenly defeated. That's not what you believe, is it? Paul said. There are the smallest... These are the smallest bones discovered that look anything like us. Could they just be pathological humans? I don't know. Maybe. Pathology could happen anywhere, so you can't rule it out when you've only got a few specimens to work with. But what my mind keeps coming back to is what these bones weren't just found anywhere. What do you mean? These bones weren't found in Africa, or Asia, or Europe. They weren't found on big land masses. These tiny bones were found on a tiny island, near the bones of dwarf elephants. And that's a coincidence? They hunted dwarf elephants, for God's sake. So if not pathological, what do you believe they are? You still haven't said. That's the powerful thing about genetics, my friend. You take your samples, do your tests... One does not have to believe. One can know. And that's precisely what is so dangerous. Strange things happen on islands. Margaret's white shirt was gone. She sat slick-armed in overalls, skin like a fine coat of gloss. The firelight beat the night back, lighting candles in their eyes. It was nearly midnight, and the researchers sat in a circle, listening to the crackle of the fire, listening to the jungle. Like the Galapagos... She said, the finches. Oh, come on, James said. The skulls we found are small with the brains the size of chimps. Island dwarfing of genus Homo. Is that what you're proposing? Some sort of local adaptation over the last 5,000 years? It's the best we have. Those bones are too different. They're not of our line. But they're younger than the other archaics. It's not like Erectus, some branch cut down at the dawn of time. These things survived here for a long time. The bones aren't even fossilized. It doesn't matter. They're still not us. Either they share common descent from man, or they were separate at the creation, at the beginning. There is no in-between. And it doesn't matter. They're still not us. Either they share common descent from man, or they were separate at the creation, at the beginning. There is no in-between. And they're only a meter tall. Don't forget that. That's just an estimate. It's a good estimate. Acrondoplasia? Those skulls are as acrondoplastic as I am. I'd say the sloped frontal bone is anti-acrondoplastic. Some kind of growth hormone deficiency would... No, Paul said, speaking in for the first time. Every face turned toward him. Now what? Pygmies have normal growth hormone levels, Paul said. Every population studied, the Negritos, the Andaman, the Congolese, all normal. The faces stared. It's the circulating domain of the receptors that are different. Paul continued. Pygmies are pygmies because of their GH receptors, not the growth hormone itself. If you inject a pygmy child with growth hormone, you still get a pygmy. Well, still, Margaret said... I don't see how that impacts whether these bones share common descent or not. James turned to the circle of faces. So, are they on our line? Are they us or other? Other. 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 Softly, the girl whispered in disbelief. But they had sewn tools.
The faces turned to Paul, but he only watched the fire and said nothing. The next morning started with the downpour. The dig team huddled in tents or under the tarped lean-to near the fire pit. Only James braved the rain, stomping off into the jungle. He was back in an hour, smiling ear to ear. Well, will you look at that, James said, holding something out for Paul to see. What is it? Partially eaten monitor, a species only found here. Paul saw now that it was a taloned foot that James held. That's a big lizard. Oh, no. This is just juvenile. Mother Nature is odd this side of the Wallace line. Not only are most of the species on this side not found anywhere else, a lot of them aren't even vaguely related to anything else. It's like God started from scratch to fill all the niches. How do you get interested in herpetology? Paul asked. By his creation shall ye know God. McMaster mentioned a dwarf elephant. Yeah, Stegodon. They're extinct now, though. Uh, what killed them off? Same thing that killed off a lot of the ancient fauna on the island. Classic catastrophism, a volcanic eruption. We found the ash layer just above the youngest bones. Once, lying in bed with a woman, Paul had watched the moon through the window. The woman traced the scars with her finger. Your father was brutal. No, Paul had said. He was broken, that's all. There's a difference? Yeah. What? He was always sorry afterwards. That mattered? Every single time. A. Incidences of local adaptation have occurred, sure. Populations adapt to changing conditions all the time. Q. Through what process? A. Differential reproductive success. Given genetic variability, it almost has to happen. It's just math and genes. 5,800 years is a long time. Q. Can you give an example? A. Most dogs would fall into this category, having been bred by man to suit his needs. While physically different from each other when you study their genes, they're all one species, though admittedly divided into several distinct clades. Q. So you're saying God created the original dog, but man bred the different varieties. A. You call it God, not me. And for the record, honey, God created the gray wolf. Man created dogs. Excerpt from the trial of geneticist Michael Poor. It came the next morning in the guise of a police action. It came in shiny new Daihatsus with roll bars and off-road tires. It came with guns, mostly with guns. Paul heard them before he saw them. Men shouting in a language he could not understand. He was with James at the cave's entrance. When Paul saw the first assault rifle, he sprinted for the tents. He slid the DNA lozenges into a pouch in his belt and punched numbers on the set phone. Gavin picked up on the second ring. Police are here, Paul said. Good Lord, I just spoke to the officials today, Gavin said. There was shouting outside the tents, angry shouts. They assured me nothing like this would happen. They lied. Behind him, James said, this is bad. This is very bad. Where are you? Paul asked. 
I'm still in Rutang, Gavin said. Then this will be over by the time you get here. Paul, it's not safe for you. Paul hung up. Tell me something I don't know. He took his knife from the sample kit and slit the back of the tent open. He slid through, James following close behind him. Paul saw Margaret standing uncertain at the edge of the jungle. Their eyes met, and Paul motioned towards the jeeps. On the count of three, they all ran for it. They climbed in and shut the doors. The soldiers, for that's what Paul knew they were now, the soldiers didn't notice them until Paul started the engine. Malay faces swung around, mouths open, and shouts of outrage. You probably want your seatbelts on for this, Paul said. Then he gunned it, spitting dirt. Don't shoot, James whispered to himself in the back seat, eyes closed in prayer. What? Paul said. If they shoot, they're not police. A round smashed through the rear window and blew out a chunk of the front windshield, spidering the safety glass. Shit! Margaret screamed. A quick glance in the rear view and Paul saw soldiers climbing into one of the Daihatsus. Paul yanked the wheel right. Not that way, Margaret shouted. Paul ignored her and floored the accelerator. Jungle whipped past, close enough to touch. Ruts threatened to buck them from the cratered roadway. The Daihatsu whipped into the view behind them. Shots rang out, a sound like Chinese firecrackers, the ding of metal. They rounded the bend and the river came into view, big and dumb as the sky. Paul gunned the engine. We're not going to make it across, James shouted. We only need to get halfway. Another shot slammed into the back of the jeep. They hit the river like a slow speed crash, water roaring up and over the broken windshield, the smell of muck suddenly overpowering. Paul stomped his foot on the floor. The jeep chugged and drifted and caught gravel. They got halfway across before Paul yanked the steering wheel to the left. The world came unstuck and started to shift. The right front fender came up, rocking with the current. The engine died. They were floating. Paul looked back. The pursuing vehicle skidded to a halt at the shoreline, and men jumped out. The jeep heaved, one wheel pivoting around a submerged rock. Can you swim? Paul asked. Now you ask us? I'd unbuckle if I were you. The jeep hit another rock, metal grinding on stone. Then sky traded places with water, and everything went dark. They dragged themselves out of the water several miles down river, where a bridge crossed the water. They followed the dirt road to a place called Rea. From there, they took a bus. Margaret had money. They didn't speak about it until they arrived in Bajwa. Do you think they're okay? Margaret asked. I think it wouldn't serve their purpose to hurt the dig team. They only wanted the bones. They shot at us. Because they assumed we had something they wanted. They were shooting at the tires. No, she said. They weren't. Three rented nights in a hotel room, and James couldn't leave. That hair, like a great big handle anybody could pick up and carry, anybody with eyes and a voice. Some of the locals hadn't seen red hair in their lives, and James's description was pre-packaged for easy transport. Paul, however, blended, just another vaguely Asian set of cheekbones in the crowd, even if he were a half foot taller than the locals. That night, 
Staring up the ceiling from one of the double beds, James said, If those bones aren't us, then I wonder what they were like. They had fire and stone tools, Paul said. They were probably a lot like us. We act like we're the chosen ones, you know. But what if it wasn't like that? Don't think about it, Margaret said. What if God had all these different varieties, all these different walks, these different options at the beginning, and we're just the ones who killed the others off? Shut up, she said. What if there wasn't just one Adam, but hundreds of Adams? Shut the fuck up, James. There was a long quiet. The sound of the street filtered through the thin walls. Paul, James said. If you get your samples back to the lab, you'll be able to tell, won't you? Paul was silent. He thought of the evaluation team and wondered. The winners write the history books, James said. Maybe the winners write the Bibles too. I wonder what religion died with them. The next day, Paul left to buy food. When he returned, Margaret was gone. Where is she? She left to find a phone. She said she'd be right back. Why didn't you stop her? I couldn't. Day turned into evening. By darkness, they both knew she wasn't coming back. How are we going to get back home? James asked. I don't know. And your samples. Even if we got to an airport, they'd never let you get on the plane with them. You'll be searched. They'll find them. We'll find a way once things have settled down. Things are never going to settle down. They will. No, you still don't get it. When your entire culture is predicated on an idea, you can't afford to be proven wrong. Out of deep sleep, Paul heard it. Something. He'd known this was coming, though he hadn't been aware that he'd known until that moment. The creak of wood, the gentle breeze of an open door. Shock and awe would have been better. An inrush of soldiers, an arrest of some kind, expulsion, deportation, a legal system, however corrupt. A silent man in the dark meant many things, none of them good. The word assassin rose up in his mind. People disappeared sometimes, never to be heard from again. Paul breathed. There was a cold in him, a part of him that was dead, a part of him that could never be afraid a part of him his father had put there. Paul's eyes searched from the shadows and found it, a place where shadow moved, a dark breeze that eased across the room. If there was only one of them, then there was a chance. Paul thought of making a run for it, sprinting for the door, leaving the samples and this place behind, but James, still sleeping, stopped him. He made up his mind. Paul exploded from the bed, flinging the blanket ahead of him, wrapping that part of the darkness. And the shape moved, darkness like a puma's spots, black on black. There, even though you can't see it. And Paul knew he'd surprised him, that darkness. And he knew instantly that it wouldn't be enough. A blow rocked Paul off his feet, forward momentum carrying him into the wall, a mirror shattered, glass crashing to the floor. What the fuck? James hit the light, and suddenly the world snapped into existence, a flashbulb stillness, and the intruder was Indonesian, crouched in a stance, preternatural silence coming off him like a heat shimmer. 
He carried endings with him, nothingness in a long blade. The insult of it hit home, the shocking fucking insult, standing there, knees bent, bright blade in one hand, blood on reflective steel. That's when Paul felt the pain. It was only then he realized he'd already been opened. And the Indonesian moved fast. He moved so fast. He moved faster than Paul's eyes could follow, covering distances like thought across the room to James, who had time to only flinch before the knife parted him. Such a professional, James's eyes went wide in surprise. Paul moved using the only things he had, size, strength, momentum. He hit the assassin like a linebacker, sweeping him into his arms, crushing him against the wall. Paul felt something snap, a twig, a branch, something in the Indonesian's chest, and they rolled apart. The assassin doing something with his hands, the rasp of blade on bone, a new blackness, and Paul flinched from the blow, feeling the steel leave his eye socket. There was no anger. It was the strangest thing to be in a fight for his life and not be angry. The assassin came at him again, and it was only Paul's size that saved him. He grabbed the arm and twisted, bringing the fight to the floor. A pushing down of his will into these three square inches into the Indonesian's throat, a caving in like a crumpling aluminum can. But Paul still held on, still pushed until the lights went out of those black eyes. I'm sorry, he said. I'm sorry. Paul rolled off him and collapsed to the floor. He crawled over to James. It wasn't a pool of blood. It was a swamp, the mattress soggy with it. James lay on the bed, still conscious. Don't bleed on me, man, James said. <clears throat> no telling what you promiscuous Americans might carry. Don't want to <clears throat> have to explain it to my girlfriend. Paul smiled at the dying man, crying and bleeding on him, wiping the blood from his beard with the pillowcase. He held James's hand until he stopped breathing. Paul's eyes opened to white. He blinked. A man in a suit sat in the chair next to the hospital bed. A man in a police uniform stood near the door. Where am I? Paul asked. He didn't recognize his own voice. It was an older man who'd eaten glass. Mao Mare, the suited man said. He was white, mid-thirties, lawyer written all over him. How long? A day. Paul touched the bandage over his face. Is my eye... I'm sorry. Paul took the news with a nod. How did I get here? They found you naked in the street. Two dead men in your room. So what happens now? Well, that depends on you, the man in the suit smiled. I'm here at the behest of certain parties, interested in bringing this to a quiet close. Quiet? Yes. Where is Margaret? Mr. McMaster. They were put on flights back to Australia this morning. I don't believe you. Whether you believe me or not is of no consequence to me. I'm just answering your questions. What about the bones? Confiscated for safekeeping, of course. The Indonesians have closed down the dig. 
It is their cave, after all. What about my DNA samples in the hotel room? The lozenges? They've been confiscated and destroyed. Paul said quietly. How did you end up in the street? The suit asked. I walked. How did you end up naked? I figured it was the only way they'd let me live. The only way to prove I didn't have the samples. I was bleeding out. I knew they'd still be coming. You're a smart man, Mr. Carlson. So you figured you'd let them have the samples. Yeah, Paul said. The suited man stood and left the room. Mostly, Paul said. On the way to the airport, Paul told the driver to pull over. He paid the fare and climbed out. He took a bus to Bengali and from there took a cab to Rhea. He climbed on a bus in Rhea and as it bore down the road, Paul yelled, Stop! The driver hit the brakes. I'm sorry, Paul said. I've forgotten something. He climbed off the bus and walked back to town. No car followed. Once in town, down one of the small side streets, he found it, the flower pot with the odd pink plant. He scooped the dirt out of the base. The old woman shouted something at him. He held out the money. For the plant, he said. I'm a flower lover. She might not have understood English, but she understood money. He walked with the plant under his arm. James had been right about some things, wrong about others. Not a hundred atoms, no, just two. All of Australoid creation like some parallel world. And you shall know God by his creations. But why would God create two atoms? That's what Paul had wondered. The answer was that he wouldn't. Two atoms, two gods, one on each side of the Wallace line. Paul imagined it began as a competition, a line drawn in the sand to see whose creation would dominate. Paul understood the burden Abraham carried to witness the birth of a religion. As Paul walked through the streets, he dug his fingers through the dirt. His fingers touched it, and he pulled the lozenge free. The lozenge no evaluation team would ever lay eyes on. He would make sure of that. He passed a woman in a doorway, an old woman with a beautiful full mouth. He thought of the bones in the cave and of the strange people who had once crouched on this island. He handed her the flower. For you, he said. He hailed a cab and climbed inside. Take me to the airport. As the old cab bounced along the dusty roads, Paul took off his eye patch. He saw the cabby glance into the rearview mirror and look away repulsed. They lied, you see, Paul told the cabby, about the irreducible complexity of the eye. Oh, there are ways. The cabby turned his radio up, keeping his face forward. Paul grimaced as he unpacked his eye, pulling the white gauze out in long strips, pain exploding in his skull. A prophet is one who feels fiercely, he said, then slid the lozenge into the empty eye socket. The End There you go, a truly stunning story, I think you'll agree. Finally, we get to the end part of the show, and by no means Amy H. Sturgis, with her part three of Proto-Science Fiction. Amy, 
Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for joining me for another look back into the history of the genre. This is part three of a three-part series on proto-science fiction, or works that predated and paved the way for modern science fiction. And just FYI, I'm counting the 1818 publication of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, or The Modern Prometheus, as the beginning of modern science fiction. In my first installment of this series, I discussed works from Plato's Republic to Tommaso Campanella's City of the Sun. In my most recent segment, I discussed works from Sir Francis Bacon's New Atlantis to Jonathan Swift's Gulliver's Travels. Today we will conclude this series with a look at 18th century and early 19th century proto-science fiction. Our first stop is in 1741. The great Danish writer Ludwig Holberg wrote histories, plays, and essays, but he also wrote a notable work of proto-science fiction. He lived from 1684 to 1754 and was well known as the Moliere of the North. His work, The Journey of Niels Klim to the World Underground, is, and I'm going to use the technical term here, so stay with me, all kinds of awesome. It took the imaginary voyage to a whole different level because he used very believable heroes and precise details, and he built the credibility of his story by documenting it with letters and different kinds of evidence, prefaces. In other words, he made the work convincing and compelling just by the way he structured his narrative. I could try to explain what happens in The Journey of Niels Klim, but to be honest, scholar James Gunn in The Road to Science Fiction has done such a fantastic job, I don't think I can compete. And so I'm going to quote his description. The story relates how Niels Klim, an impoverished university graduate, seeks to make a reputation for himself by exploring a mysterious cave in Norway, falls through the earth, orbits a central planet, fights off a griffin, and is pulled by it to the planet where he discovers intelligent, mobile trees who consider him so flighty and shallow that he is good for nothing but carrying messages, tries to get a law passed overthrowing the equality of the sexes, and is condemned to be flown to the firmament, the inside of the earth, where he encounters all kinds of civilizations of monkeys, tigers, bears, gamecocks, base fiddles, ice creatures, and finally humans. For the humans, he trains cavalry, manufactures muskets, builds ships, and leads them into battle, where he is victorious. He succeeds the emperor and subdues most of the kingdoms of the firmament before power corrupts him. His people rebel against his cruelty, and, trying to hide, he falls back through a hole in a cave and finds himself in Norway again. Quite a story, isn't it? But the importance of the piece lies in the fact that it makes the transition from just flighty stories of fantastic travel to science fiction in the way that it creates verisimilitude with its deep descriptions and varied means of confirming and authenticating the story that it's telling. This tale is available online at Project Gutenberg, and an unabridged reading of it is available for free download at LibriVox.org. 
And now we journey to France, to the very heart of the French Enlightenment, and to someone you may not associate with science fiction, namely the great French philosopher Voltaire. He lived from 1694 to 1778, and in his stirring defense of civil liberties, from freedom of religion to free trade, he penned more than 2,000 books and pamphlets. Taking in just about every literary form there is—plays, poetry, novels, essays, etc. One of his works was a work of science fiction, 1752's *Micromegas*, which tells of a journey not to the stars, but in fact to Earth. Neither of the main characters, in fact, are human. One is a giant creature from Sirius. And his traveling companion is a six thousand foot dwarf from Saturn. Voltaire's story is a great antidote for an anthropocentric view of the universe, because these aliens have a very hard time even determining that there is life on Earth. When they finally get here, they speak with humans and are deeply unimpressed. They find human ideas pretty much. To be as insignificant as our slight height in comparison to the two giants. Here, Voltaire is using his legendary wit to poke fun of and pass judgment on his fellow humans. In doing so, he also set the stage for later science fiction authors to use the outsider perspective, the alien point of view, for a different window into the human condition. Micromegas is also available online at Project Gutenberg, and an unabridged recording of the story is available at LibriVox.org. One of Voltaire's countrymen is next on our list, namely Louis Sebastien Mercier, who lived from 1740 to 1814 and was known as a French dramatist and writer. He's best remembered for his work of science fiction, which came in 1771, and was the year 2440, a dream if ever there was one. It was also translated into English as Memoirs of the Year 2500. I should point out up front that this is the very first work to take a specific future date as the title for a work of fiction. And thus, kind of set the stage for works like 1984 by George Orwell and others to come. The story was particularly critical of life under Louis the Fifteenth. It was very obvious that he was critiquing society at the time. So obvious that his book was banned in France and put on the Inquisition's list of forbidden books in 1773. As I'm sure you can imagine, particularly in a time of political unrest, one of the best ways to make a work popular was to ban it. And in fact, this book went through 25 editions pretty quickly after its 1771 debut. In the story, an unnamed character has a heated debate with his friend about all of the injustices of France at the time, and then he falls asleep and happens to wake up 700 years later. In 25th century Paris, much to his delight, he finds the world, if not perfect, and it certainly isn't perfect, at least much, much better than he remembered it. 
The crown has been overthrown and replaced by a benevolent government. The city is beautiful. Its citizens well educated and free from tyranny and from superstition. The changes that Mercier details are far more political and social than technological and scientific. Some see the work as a direct influence on what became the French Revolution, including a not so modest Mercier himself. What's significant about this work, besides the fact it actually set a date on the future, is that the author chose a real place as the setting for his better world, and the reader could infer fairly easily how that world went from point A, the world in which Mercier was writing, to point B, the world that he described. The immediate political and social ramifications of this then. Are different than those of, say, Sir Thomas More's Utopia, which is just a fuzzy place out there somewhere that, poof, has the ideal world. This is not the perfect Paris, but it's a much better Paris. And by seeing the ways in which Paris is better in the story, Mercier suggests the differences he would like to see in his contemporary Paris. The next work of proto science fiction that I would like to discuss was written by Nicolas Edmeret Tif de la Bretonne, a French novelist. He lived from 1734 to 1806 and has been described as inordinately vain, of extremely relaxed morals, and perhaps not entirely sane, paving the way for some of science fiction's later characters, such as Harlan Ellison, perhaps. In his 1802 novel *Les Postumes* or *The Posthumous*, he becomes the first author to imagine a very far future setting, paving the way for people like, for example, Olaf Stapledon to come. The book follows several million years of future history, sketching out biological evolution, geological changes. All sorts of transformations in the world and the people who live there. His focus is on biology and geology, the slow mutations and transformations over long periods of time. What's particularly poignant about this book is that it is framed by a story that's supposedly written by Jacques Cazot, who was guillotined during the Terror in 1792. By giving the reader this vast and distant perspective on humanity, it then brings into sharp relief the terrible violence and passion of the French Revolution when it is described in such intimate detail. Again, you have a proto-science fiction author gaining perspective by stepping out of the human. Or at least contemporary context to look back on what was happening during his time. Last but definitely not least, we come to Jean Baptiste Guzan de Grainville, who wrote in 1805 perhaps the first novel ever written on the popular "Last Man on Earth" theme, appropriately titled "The Last Man." As you may have guessed from the title, this is not a happy book. In the future, the Earth is dying. It can no longer produce or sustain life. The main character goes to Brazil, where the very last people have found refuge. 
the main character chooses to die rather than to breed a new species of monstrous cannibals that resemble and anticipate H.G. Wells' Morlocks. The role this book plays as a post-apocalyptic first is noteworthy. In the short term, it anticipated one of my very favorite novels, Mary Shelley's 1826 The Last Man. But it also inspired, because of its popularity, some of the very first unauthorized spin-off works in literary history. In 1832, one fan of the work published The Last Man, Poem Inspired by Grainville, an expanded version of the story, which also included new descriptions, such as aerial cities and a failed attempt at leaving Earth to colonize another planet. Another tribute came in 1858, when an author took the main character from The Last Man and utilized that character in a new story, The Unitide, or The Messiah Woman, which took place in the year 2000, when, according to this author, God sends a female messiah to save Earth, and she botches the job. In 1859, yet another author wrote Omigar, or The Last Man, another poetic epic inspired by the original 1805 novel. A mere 13 years after The Last Man came Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, and the rest, as they say, is history. I hope that you've enjoyed this whirlwind tour through some of the high points in the history of proto-science fiction. Just as a recap, today we talked about the journey of Niels Klim to the world underground in 1741, Micromegas in 1752, the year 2440 in 1771, Posthumus in 1802, and The Last Man in 1805. I look forward to talking with you again the next time we look into the history of the genre. There you go. Three-part special by Ian H. Sturgis. Amy, thank you so much. You work, I was going to say work your bollocks off, but you're not, not really in that respect. But a damned hard work. So, Amy, thank you so much. You know what I mean? You've really helped me out these past couple of months. This past year or two. So, yes, thank you so much. Do pop over to Amy's new website. Check out all the photos and everything there. And check out her blog. Well, that is Starship Sofa's Oral Delights. I hope you enjoyed it. Like I say, we've been, you know, back for our first bang. What a bang of a show. Do you mean, I hope you like, you tucked up in bed then, you've been listening to this show. You know, what can I say? I hope you've enjoyed it. If you have enjoyed it, now's the time, you know what I mean? I kind of lay my wares on the table. That's what Starship Sofa can do. You know, this past show, this is what we're going to put out. If you want to support this kind of work and this kind of material, please consider the £2.50 monthly donation. That just helps immensely. Trust us when I say that. Do you know what I mean? It's just a regular income that kind of gets me over that hurdle of worrying about everything like that. And it is so appreciated. So if you could, please, it would mean a lot to us. Do join me next week. Until then, I would just like to say good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? 
can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Distortion Sofa. Of that duration procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.